worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, this is Dan Ambinder. Welcome back to the show. Glad you stuck with us through episode two. You. And this is Amit Goyal. Super jazzed about bringing you this very first of a recurring episode format that we like to call Pulse Check. <laughs> Wait, but Dan, why did we pick that name? Because Amit, we spent so much time talking about the basics of aortic stenosis. Now it's time to take a pulse check with our experts. Ah, I see. That makes so much sense. So now we will interview content experts to dive deeper into the topic? That's exactly right. Today, we will learn even more about aortic stenosis. So with that, enough of us, and let's get started with our aortic stenosis experts. Super excited to get started, but team, just remember that this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. But hey, enough of the legalities, time for more cardiology. I'm here with Dr. Sneha Bakamudi, current cardiovascular imaging fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. Sneha earned her medical degree at UT Southwestern and completed her internal medicine residency training at Duke. She went on to Cleveland Clinic for general cardiology fellowship and luckily for us, stayed here for advanced imaging. Sneha, thanks so much for being here and really excited to learn from you. Thanks so much for having me, Amit. Awesome. So let's get started here. When Heather consulted us on her patient with aortic stenosis, we did spend some time talking about the low flow, low gradient AS, but I still find it a confusing topic. So I'm wondering if you have anything else to add to that discussion. Yeah, I think you guys had a really great discussion on low flow, low gradient, which is just something we encounter not infrequently in our cardiology clinics and can be really difficult to parse out between other symptoms such as just kind of straightforward heart failure or whether you truly have severe AS. Um, one uh, issue that I think was really important to bring up is the idea of paradoxical low flow, low gradient AS, in which you have uh, low flow, low gradient AS in a patient with a normal ejection fraction. Right. And I, I think, actually had a patient like that just today, and we were trying to figure out whether or not we should uh, refer him now or later. So I think it's still, you know, it can still be complex. Yeah, and I think those patients are really hard from multiple standpoints. Uh, I think diagnosing them is extremely difficult, mm -hmm. and it's something in which a cardiologist really has to use every tool in their toolkit to figure out, you know, is this really AS that's causing my patient's symptoms? For sure. Um, low flow, low gradient uh, AS is paradoxical. If people don't know, is uh, entity in which the aortic valve area is less than one, you have a mean gradient less than 40, and an ejection fraction greater than 50%, with the stroke volume less than 35 mLs per meter squared. Um, as opposed to being purely related to a calcified or narrowed valve, it's usually related to uh, concentric remodeling of a ventricle and restrictive physiology, so creating a low output, also in the setting of maybe a calcified and restricted uh, aortic valve. Um, in this case, ejection fraction doesn't really accurately represent the physiologic state of an unimpaired ventricle. Um, and in fact, these patients have a very high mortality, almost three times that of people with 
normal flow low gradient or normal flow high gradient AS. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us to pick up on them, diagnose them accurately. And then like you said, I think we don't really know what to do with their management. Um, we have shown that these patients actually may do a little bit better when they get their aortic valves replaced. But as to when we should be replacing them, I think that's an area that we don't have a lot of clarity on right now. Yeah, a lot of unknowns with that. And there's, uh, actually, I really enjoyed that recent Jack review that we were talking about with AS and how often those patients might have underlying amyloid. Yeah. And so figuring that out might be important just because they may have symptoms, but maybe it's not purely related to the AS itself. Yeah. You, know, you go back to the LV. Mm -hmm. So moving on, you know, we did spend some time talking about the, the echo evaluation of AS, so the gradients the velocities and the area, but how do you use the dimensionless index and how does it help you um, in addition to those parameters? Okay. A dimensionless index is something I really like. For me, it's, it's I like simplifying everything. Yeah. And I think of the dimensionless index as a simplified form of the continuity equation where you've essentially just taken out the part of the equation that involves cross-sectional area. Hmm. So what it is, is um, it's a ratio of the velocity from the LVOT over the velocity um, through the aortic valve, so the VTIs of both of those, to give you essentially a velocity ratio. And in a normal patient, you would think that the ratio should be one because the flow through the LVOT should be the same as the flow out the aorta, the velocities Makes sense. should be the same. And in severe AS, um, that ratio will get down to about 25% of normal. So a dimensionless index of 0.25 or less is something we consider as severe AS. Um, the nice thing about the dimensionless index is it, it kind of ignores variations in body size. Mm -hmm. So you might have a different aortic valve area if you have the same velocities but a different LVOT size but your dimensionless index will be the same patient to patient. Oh, interesting. So it doesn't, it can almost normalize mm -hmm. for like a BSA and whatnot. Yeah, so it can normalize a little bit for the BSA. The other thing that can be nice about it is one of the hardest things for us to do when we calculate aortic valve area using echo is to accurately determine the LVOT dimension. Right. And as you know, that dimension ends up getting squared. So any error in calculating that only gets magnified when we have our aortic valve area calculation. Yeah. So the dimensionless index takes that part of the equation out. You're not of relying it. on that dimension at all. Yeah, you're not relying on it at all. So any the variability. Dimensionless index. Exactly. <laughs> right. So any variability you might have, reader to reader, echo to echo, in calculation of the LVOT kind of goes away. So it's a nice thing to trend in your patients to right. see: is this going down? Is it pretty stable? Um, it's extremely important prosthetics valves where now your LVOT and the area of the valve has been completely changed because of uh, the use of either a mechanical or bioprosthesis. Oh, so that's we, a really good point. We rely on it really heavily in our evaluation of whether a prosthetic valve is functioning normally, whether it's getting more stenosed over time. Gotcha. So I guess you can even follow it over time in patients with prosthetic valves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you're getting all this great training on multimodality imaging right now, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you where other imaging modalities come into play in the evaluation of aortic valve pathology, so like 3D or TEE, MR, CT, et cetera. Yeah, I think one of the areas in which multimodality can be the most helpful for is in when you're having a little confusion or a little bit of um, kind of little lack of clarity as to the etiology of your aortic valve dysfunction. Whether it's figuring out aortic valve morphology, mm -hmm. trying to figure out if it's tri-leaflet or a bicuspid valve, um, using TE and 3D can be really helpful just because you get a much crisper, clearer picture of the valve. Even 4D CT can be really helpful because the spatial resolution of CT is so high that when you get a moving picture of that valve, you can really see um, how many leaflets there are, whether you have any issues with it. Um, in addition, uh, CT can be really helpful if you have any aortopathy related to that valve. Oh, so that looking at sense. the aorta. Um, I think using TE and MRI can also be helpful if you have concern for subaortic stenosis. 
CT can get you really nice pictures of the LVOT. With MRI, you can see flow acceleration beneath mm -hmm. the valve really easily. You can probably be a lot more precise about where the flow acceleration is happening. Yeah. Imagine, right? yeah, so I think when you have a confusing patient where you say, hey, this person's a little bit too young to kind of get straightforward calcific mm -hmm. AS, or if you have someone where all the pieces just aren't quite fitting, um, I think of echo as the workhorse for AS, but you can use CT and MRI as really helpful adjuncts. Gotcha. One thing MRI is really useful for is calculating volumes of the mm -hmm. ventricle. So if you have a patient with low flow AS, you can use MRI if you have confusion about the true stroke volume of a patient gotcha. um, and whether or not their ejection fraction is declining over time. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. That's great. Um, so, you know, in our patient, we thought that the decision for going from mechanical valve was pretty straightforward, but there's so much that goes on into that discussion. I'm wondering um, how you go about uh, that counseling and such an important decision for the patient. Yeah, I actually don't think that the decision of mechanical versus bioprosthetic uh, valve is an easy decision for either patients or clinicians. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really great example of where shared decision making, as we talk about in medicine, um, can really, really be helpful. I think uh, age is important for the patient. I think it's a lot easier for us to put a bioprosthesis in someone who may be a little bit older, say in their 60s or 70s, um, knowing that you know that valve will last them 15 years or so, and at that point, um, they could either get another surgery or get a, a percutaneous valve. But for a younger patient, I think it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, um, mechanical valves, when they do well, can last a lifetime. But there are a lot of things that go with a mechanical valve that really impact a patient's life, particularly anticoagulation. Um, I think for young females that the idea of a mechanical valve and bearing children is kind of scary. Um, not to say that a woman can't have a mechanical valve and have a very healthy pregnancy, which we've shown through studies that they can, even on um, drugs like warfarin. But I think that it's a lot to think about for... I actually hadn't thought about that aspect of it, to be mm -hmm. honest. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I think even for, for people with childbearing isn't a question, um, you know, putting someone on long-term anticoagulation really changes their life. A young person who's active, likes running, mm -hmm. likes hiking, likes doing stuff outside, that may take away a part of their life that they gain a lot of pleasure from. Right. And so I think that... Um, having that conversation with a patient, taking your time, talking with them and with the surgeon as to, you know, this is how old you are, this is how we see your life going forward with this type of valve versus a mechanical valve, um, kind of sitting down and all coming to agreement as to what the future holds for that person and what they're going to be accepting of as future risks is, right. is an important thing to do well before the question of urgently needing surgery is on the table. No, those are all really good points, and I am excited to see how the advent of valve and valve taver will change the equation for some of these cases. Yeah. Because it, you know, it just makes the reoperation just a different balance of yeah. risks down the road. Absolutely. I think percutaneous valves in general are really going to change the, the landscape of this as we learn more about it. You know, maybe we even say we do a taver mm -hmm. first. Right. And then that gives them 15 years, and then they can get a bioprosthesis, right. and then they can get a valve and valve, which now that's you know 45 years as opposed to mm -hmm. you know two valves. It's a lot of different permutations there. Mm -hmm. So once the patient's got undergone the aortic valve replacement and goes back to see Heather, what is your guidance on post-AVR imaging surveillance? Yeah, so post-prosthetic valves, uh, the guidelines actually differ a little bit in mm -hmm. terms of the U.S. guidelines or American Society of Echo guidelines versus the European Society. Um, the American Society of Echo says that for a bioprosthetic valve, 
Um, all patients should kind of get an initial echo evaluation about two to four weeks, 30 days or so after surgery, can kind of get a baseline. Mm -hmm. um, but that for a bioprosthesis, you don't really need annual surveillance until five years after the valve is implanted. Oh, and for a mechanical, that you don't need surveillance ever unless the patient's having problems. Um, that differs greatly from the European Society of Cardiology, which recommends a 30-day baseline, but then annual follow-up. Gotcha. And I will say personally, my comfort level is with the European guidelines. I like a little closer follow-up. Right. You know, of course, you bring a patient in to see you earlier if they're having symptoms. But for me, I feel really good with an annual check because even though patients might be feeling well, there might be kind of slow things that happen over time that you can just catch a little bit more easily if they're getting an annual echo as opposed to getting one, you know, five years out of surgery. And I'm sure, you know, after having seen so many complications, you realize the importance of close follow-up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking of which, what are some of the prosthetic valve complications we should keep in mind with the long-term follow-up? Yeah, I think once a patient has a prosthetic valve, they have a lifelong relationship with their cardiologist, and we can break the um, complications of prosthetic valves into kind of two groups, yeah. early and late. Okay. The good thing is there's not too many early complications. Um, most of them are related to problems that happen in surgery. You know, a surgery is a complicated procedure. For sure. You can have issues with the valve being implanted that we, we usually catch early on, and and every prosthetic valve gets a post-op TEE before they leave the operating room. Um, and so that's a really vital step that either a cardiologist or a cardiac anesthesiologist will perform to help diagnose any early issues. Um, probably the, the biggest thing we wanna be aware of is something called patient prosthesis mismatch, mm -hmm. where essentially the valve is implanted fine, but is just too small for a patient's native cardiac output. And so you essentially get like a, almost a stenotic valve because the valve is undersized for the patient. Interesting. And that's an important thing to find because if patients are really symptomatic from prosthesis mismatch, it means they may need to have another surgery. And is it right that that's sometimes more likely to occur with a saver than a taver? Because in a taver you can upsize? Yeah, a taver you can actually put a valve in that's a little bit bigger than the, the native um, LVOT and kind of annulus area. Gotcha. And with a SAVR, the surgeons always put in the biggest valve that they can, but sometimes patients just have really high cardiac output. Right, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then the late pro um, complications that we want to etch out for are a little bit different depending on what kind of valve you have. For mechanical, of course, thromboembolism is the thing we worry the most. Um, for bioprosthetic valves, we worry about degeneration. That usually, it kind of is, it happens naturally about the 15 year mark. But in some patients can have a really accelerated course, um, valves can calcify early. Um, and you can also develop panis, which is a little bit like thrombus in that it blocks the valve, but it's almost like a tissue layer that covers the valve. We don't 100% know why it happens in people, but some people get it and we have to watch for it. And then always, always, always for prosthetic valves, the number one thing everyone worries about is infection. Oh, for sure. So we take really good care of the valves. Every time that patients go for dental cleaning, they need to follow the appropriate recommendations for you know, antibiotic prophylaxis and make sure that if they ever have fevers, chills, things like that, they're not only contacting a primary care doctor, but maybe contacting their cardiologist to say, hey, something's going on with me. I just don't feel quite right. No, that's great. And, you know, Sam, this is so helpful. I feel like I've learned so much. And I kind of feel like for my next elective, I should just like follow you around and, <laughs> and learn more from you. But, you know, before I let you go, I've got to ask how you manage it all. You know, I think you were such an all-star fellow. You're doing amazing things in imaging now. And you still had time to get an extra master's degree in clinical research during it all. But, you know, at the same time, I bump into you in daycare, dropping off your adorable son, Danny. And, <laughs> and as a junior fellow and father myself, I just wonder if you have any advice on 
balancing all these parts of our lives. Yeah. Well, I will say it is hard. And I know, <laughs> I can say that I know before I had kids, I would look around at people who had yeah. kids and be like, oh, they make it look so easy. Well, yeah. they're lying. <laughs> yeah. Even though they make it look easy, I don't think anyone would tell you that it's not hard. For sure. Um, I think that especially as a female who, you know, carried my child as I was a fellow, I did our ICU month when I was seven to eight months pregnant and then came back to work um, about eight weeks after I had my kid. I think that first year, um, especially coming back to work, is really hard. And I think the really important part is as physicians, as trainees, we're so used to wanting to do it all and, you know, prove how strong we are. But I think it's really important to know when you need help and be able to ask for help. And help from various places. I got so much help from my mm -hmm. other co-fellows who had had kids and been through this before, who gave me advice to what to do. You know, if my kid had a fever or something I was worried about, I would ask them, and it was really great. I had wonderful female mentors here who had kids, who would be able to give me advice on, you know, how to balance things and when I should prioritize, you know, work versus family and family versus work. And then asking the program when things get tough, I think your your co-fellows for the most part are going to be really supportive of you and want you to do well, but they won't know unless you ask. And so I think if you try to do it all yourself, it's going to be even harder than it already is. So always ask people for support and, and ask your partner. I think my husband's wonderful mm -hmm. and um, he knows how hard my job is and really stepped up to the plate when we had our kid. Um, and having a supportive partner is really important through this. And for those who don't have partners, you know, friends, family, anyone you can ask, I think it's important to have your network of people. Yeah, it really, I mean, you know, you definitely make it look easy, but, <laughs> but I think you're right. It definitely takes a village. And yeah. You shouldn't be afraid to ask for help. But mm -hmm. Sina, thank you so much for your time. And this has been great. Yeah, no problem. Hi, this is Kareen. It's great to be here today. And we're so excited to host Dr. Rani Hassan for our expert discussion today. Dr. Rani Hassan is an interventional cardiologist at Johns Hopkins Hospital, assistant professor of medicine, and assistant program director of the Interventional Fellowship. Most recently, he was named the director of the structural program at Suburban Hospital. He obtained his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University, completed residency training at University of Pennsylvania, and came back to complete his cardiology fellowship at Hopkins. During his fellowship, he earned an MHS in the Graduate Training Program in Clinical Investigation at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Hassan has been an absolute mentor and a guide throughout my cardiology training. I feel like every time I work with him in a case in the lab, I definitely get made fun of a lot, but I come out completely better for it. I spend about 75 plus percent of the time with my foot in my mouth, and I'm just overcome with giddiness when I'm working with him. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Rani Hassan to the show. Glad to be here, guys. We're so excited to have you and get your expert opinion on the management of aortic stenosis. So we'll start with our first question. What are the factors that you consider when evaluating patients for possible TAVR? Well, first let me say that this is a very dynamic area that is rapidly changing over time as we uh, procure more data regarding the efficacy of TAVR in different populations. But I think right now it still starts with the patient's history and namely, is the patient symptomatic? Does the patient have severe symptomatic aortic stenosis? Now that is something that may change. You guys may have already heard from the AHA. There's been one major randomized trial suggesting that even in asymptomatic patients with very severe aortic stenosis, there may be a benefit, at least in that case, of surgical AVR in terms of reducing outcomes even out to 30 days. But for the time being, for most of our TAVR patients, especially those who are more elderly, where the goal is really to maximize quality of life, 
uh, for me, symptoms is still paramount. So do they have severe symptomatic aortic stenosis? The next consideration for us used to really be what would be their risk to undergo conventional surgical aortic valve replacement, or SAVR, SAVR for short, as we call it now, vis-a-vis TAVR. And that's changing now with the approval of TAVR for patients at low surgical risk. What we start to think about now is rather than think about the, is the patient at elevated risk for complications with SAVR and therefore should be a TAVR candidate, we think more about what is this patient's expected life expectancy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the life expectancy of their bioprosthetic valve. So if you've got a younger patient who's likely to go through at least two bioprosthetic valves, then maybe you're thinking if that patient is low risk, maybe they should have surgery first and then get a TAVR for their next valve. And maybe if they need a third valve, they can get another TAVR and TAVR. On the other hand, if you've got somebody on the other end of the spectrum, maybe an octogenarian and a nonagenarian who is going to need one valve and or who's clearly going to be at elevated risk for surgery, then you're going to perform a TAVR. And then the patients in between, you really have to look at each patient individually and come oftentimes to a shared decision-making approach, especially in the younger patients, to make sure the patient understands the issues with the durability of the devices vis-a-vis -vis their life expectancy and how many more procedures they may need. That's wonderful. And it's a really rapidly evolving field. So it'll be exciting to see how the guidelines change with regards to recommendations for TAVR based on varying risk profiles. Now, let's say you've decided that a patient is a great candidate for TAVR. What are your thoughts about the pre-TAVR workup with regards to left heart catheterization versus coronary CTA? So one of the most important considerations when we're evaluating somebody for TAVR or even trying to determine what the best approach is, SAVR versus TAVR, is a cardiac CTA of the chest coupled with abdominal and pelvic imaging to look at the peripheral vasculature. So that tells us about the aortic root anatomy, the size of the valve, the configuration of the coronaries relative to the aortic valve, and whether there's sufficient size in the sinuses to accommodate the TAVR device and the prolapsed uh, aortic valve leaflet. So remember, when we do a TAVR, we don't remove the old valve. There's no cutting involved. There's no resection of the leaflets. The native leaflets are going to be splayed open and pressed against the into the sinuses of Falsalva, essentially. So you actually need a place for those bulky calcified leaflets to end up. And where you don't want them to go is the ostium of a coronary. So we pay very close attention to the aortic root anatomy to, to assure that we have sufficient sinus uh, dimensions, both diameters and heights, so that your leaflets are not going to obstruct your coronary or sequester the sinus. And then, of course, if we're looking at the annular diameter. We want to make sure we pick the right size device. All the device vendors have different sizes. In general, we tell the patients there's a small, medium, large, and extra large size. Um, and then, of course, we want to make sure we have a path to deliver the valve. So in 90 plus percent of cases, we can go through iliofemoral access, usually with percutaneous puncture. But in rare cases, there may be peripheral arterial disease that may be prohibitive in terms of allowing for large bore sheath access required for TAVR. And even though most devices now are down to 14 to 18 French, there are still some patients who cannot tolerate that from an iliofemoral approach. And of course, there are alternative approaches that are uh, can be used and strategies that can be used. So those pieces of information are really the most important in planning. Now, in terms of looking at 
coronary artery disease, I think this is an area that's also undergoing some dynamic change over time. When we first started doing TAVRs, we believed everybody needed an angiogram, and if somebody had obstructive disease, we needed to revascularize it if feasible. And so most people were doing stenting, and it's probably about a third of TAVR patients, at least in the early trials, who would have coexisting coronary artery disease. I think we've moved away from routine coronary vascularization. Obviously, if somebody has angina that we think might be driven by their coronaries in as much as their valve, then sure, we will fix it. But more and more so, we're, we're finding that we do the angiogram really to help risk stratify them. For example, if you have somebody with severe coronary artery disease, you might not want to rapidly pace them for a balloon expandable valve. Mm. That might lean us towards a self-expanding device. Um, also, if somebody had coronary disease that you think you might have to potentially come back and fix later, want to at least leave that door open to be more easy, then we might put the balloon expandable valve if somebody has a single or two vessel disease that you wonder, oh, maybe I might have to come back and fix this down the line. So, but in terms of using the CT, I think most of us still rely on a invasive coronary angiogram. The main reason being that a lot of these patients with severe aortic stenosis also have calcific coronaries, and so we worry about the diagnostic accuracy of a cardiac CTA in terms of looking for coronary obstruction. So I think for right now, most people will still do an invasive angiogram in addition to the chest CT that we get to evaluate the aortic anatomy to help ascertain the coronary status before we embark on TAVR versus SAVR. And other than the coronary anatomy, are there any other considerations that you take into place um, with regard to deciding whether to use a self-expandable versus a balloon expanding? So let me first say a lot of this has to do with operator preference. Mm -hmm. There are some institutions and operators who really have mastered one device platform. They're happy with it and they use it for everything. Um, we here um, are a little more flexible in terms of our choice of devices and we try to tailor the choice to each patient's uh, unique characteristics. So for me, a patient, let's say, with if they have really severe coronary artery disease where I think it would be higher risk to rapidly pace and it's unlikely we're going to try to revascularize in the future, I may go with a self-expanding device. Similarly, in somebody with very low EF, where I also want to avoid the stress of rapid pacing, then a self-expanding device would be preferable. The other circumstance where a self-expanding device would be preferable is in a valve and valve and we basically exclusively use a self-expanding device for valve and valves when you're treating a previous existing but failed aortic bioprosthesis. On the other hand, if somebody has, you know, previous coronary vascularization with stenting and you think, well, they're they're working on some instant restenosis, they're going to live probably another 5 to 10 years, there's a fair chance they're going to need to come back for more coronary work then I might put in a balloon expandable just because it is a little bit easier to get into the coronaries in, in our experience at least. And that's something that's a debate that different operators might have different opinions about. The other area where I will often lean towards using a balloon expandable device will be in the patient who has pre-existing significant conduction disease. Um, we at least think that a balloon expandable will tend to have a lower pacemaker rate. That's what's been observed in the clinical trials. That being said, if a self-expanding device is implanted high enough, you can generally achieve comparable pacemaker rate between the two. But it's generally easier to get a higher implant with the balloon expandable. The other uh, factor that will sometimes lean us to the current balloon expandable platform versus the current self-expanding platform, if there's any issues with the iliofemorals where we want to put one sheath in and not have to do any type of sheath exchanges. So right now with the Medtronic self-expanding Evolute platform, 
they have an inline sheath that comes on their device, but you have to insert another sheath first, cross the valve, put your stiff wire into the into that left ventricle, and then when we're ready to actually deliver the valve and, de and deploy it, we actually remove that sheath and use their inline sheath, so we keep it at a smaller size. You can put a, a larger sheath in that you don't have to exchange, but then it's a much larger sheath, let's say a 20 French instead of using a 14 French. So we sometimes don't like to have to do that sheath exchange if somebody has some disease. Um, so the advantage of the current balloon expandable Edwards platform, the Sapien 3, is they have their own sheath that comes with their device. You put that in and that's it. It stays in there for the duration of the case until you're done and you remove it. Um, so that's a, a more esoteric technical uh, detail that sometimes plays into our decision making. So you can see there are a number of technical factors that we can cons consider, at least at this institution, that helps us decide. And in some cases, it's almost a 50-50 split hmm. um, in terms of which device may be better. I will say, as now we've embarked upon TABR in low-risk populations, I think our leaning in the lower-risk younger patient is to perhaps use the balloon expandable platform only because it has a shorter profile right. and would, number one, be easier to get into coronaries. Number two, when you go to put a valve in valve, mm -hmm. we probably prefer, prefer the super annular design of the self-expanding Medtronic platform, but then you don't want to have two layers of mesh overlying the, or the sinuses. So you have the lower, plat, the lower profile Edwards device and it's kind of going to behave like a surgical aerodynamic prosthesis when you do a valve and valve down the line. So that's kind of the, um, the current paradigm, but like I said, this is evolving and probably will change over the coming years. That's wonderful. Um, and in terms of balloon aortic valvuloplasty, when do you usually consider that procedure as beneficial? Yes, yeah, so that's important because that's, you know, it's one of the things that's come back up in the guidelines more recently as something to consider. And I certainly... I'm generally not in favor of doing it in somebody who's not going to be a candidate for definitive aortic valve therapy. Mm -hmm. So where we consider it is in somebody who may eventually be a candidate for a TAVR or a SAVR, but perhaps has some current illness or issue that needs to be addressed that would put the prognosis for the patient in question. So let's say they have... Um, a mass that needs to be evaluated. They need a biopsy. They need potentially a surgical resection where they need to be put under anesthesia. And you're not sure what their prognosis is going to be based on that, if they have a malignancy or not. And if so, what is going to be their life expectancy on the, from the oncologic standpoint? That's probably the most common situation in which I perform a temporizing balloon valvuloplasty in somebody with symptomatic severus who needs to have that resection done or needs to have that you know, combination of chemo and radiation or whatever that may put stress on the cardiovascular system so that they can get that done, we can get more definitive information about prognosis and then decide about definitive valve therapy down the line. So it's kind of kicking the decision down the, down the curb, if you will. Occasionally you have somebody, for example, who's sick with sepsis, you don't want to put a fresh valve into, you know, a bioprosthesis into somebody who's septic, but you, if you can get them through that acute episode, maybe they'll survive and be able to benefit from aortic valve therapy, so we might do a BAV in those situations as well. BTT, Bridge to Taver. Oh yeah, I'm just so excited for my structural fellowship, this is all very, <laughs> this is awesome. And also, a lot of the nuances that I don't, as a general fellow, I'm not privy to, especially like when it comes to um, picking which kind of valve you're going to use, so... This is great. Yeah. That brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. 
Don't forget to check the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. We should do we should do one, two, three like we did with the ring ring? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. One, one, two, two three. Three. Post check. On <laughs> <laughs> three or right after the three. <laughs> after three. After three. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Three. we do it one more yeah. time. You ready? One. One. Two. Two. Three. Three. Pulse, Pulse check. check.